My guest today is Professor Rita Grootstein, who is Professor of Psychiatry and Neuroscience in the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Her research focuses on neuroimaging and neuropsychological studies in drug addiction. Welcome, Rita. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me for this important work. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So I want to start with one of your older papers from 2002. You've been, you've been doing research in this area for a long time. Uh, and that is entitled Drug Addiction and its Underlying Neurobiological Basis, Neuroimaging Evidence for the Involvement of the Frontal Cortex. Uh, so you see here, studies of the neurobiological processes underlying drug addiction primarily have focused on limbic subcortical structures. Here, the authors evaluated the role of frontal cortical structures in drug addiction. Uh, without knowing anything about this, uh, Rita, I find this really interesting. Um, and so the, the limbic subcortical structures, and obviously I, I have no background in neuroscience or neurology, but the limbic subcortical structures, am I thinking, thinking about it correctly? These, these would have been sort of early development in the private brain and the, the frontal cortical structures, perhaps later development, especially in, in human humans. And so it, it, this is really fascinating for me because if it was if, if it were the former that is driving addiction, and, and neuro, neuro, neurologists and neuroscientists hate me uh, when I make analogies to computers, but uh, it, it seems like sort of a hardware effect, but it was the frontal cortical structures that are really getting involved in addiction it's almost like a software effect. Um, I guess that's my you know, sort of limited um, view. So, so what do you find here? So that's a, per, a very good question to start with. And uh, I don't divide things to hardware versus software. It's all brain and every brain region is important for our behavior, for our emotions, cognitive function, and it all works together. Uh, but still, the early studies of addiction and still the preclinical studies, studies in animals, focus very much on these subcortical regions like uh, nucleus accumbens or dopaminergic midbrain. Um, and they are the regions that indeed show homologies across species. And our frontal region of the brain, the one in the, pre in the, the prefrontal cortex, that's a vast region, the percent that it occupies from the cortex in humans is much larger than other species. And it has unique, it's last to develop and it has also unique type of functions in humans. But before going and talking about the importance of studying the prefrontal cortex in addiction, vis-a-vis -vis the subcortical regions that are as important, um, I would like to first define what addiction is. Yeah. Because uh, it's extremely common in lay population and also very sophisticated lay population. Uh, people who are MDs, people who are scientists in other fields, to think that we're all addicted to something. Peter, could I interrupt you for just one minute? It seems like I'm getting a clicking noise when you come forward. Uh, so see if you can just just sit back. I think you're touching something. I don't know what, but what might be causing it. But just just sit. Sit back, then it'll be, I think it'll be okay, good. Okay, no problem. Yeah. Okay. So uh, people think there is this common perception that we are all addicted to something, or to our iPhone, to chocolate, to <laughs> all kinds of different things. If you ask somebody, they will say, oh, of course, we're all addicted. 
Um, and I actually think, we think in the lab also, that this is a, a misuse of the concept of addiction. We definitely all have all kind of bad habits. That's definitely for sure. And we have more or less controls over our type of habits. And we all have things we want to change in our behavior. But that, and we all, many of us, not all, but many of us, millions of us, tried all kind of different drugs in our youth during different times and still some of us are using it pretty uh, on a common basis on a frequent regular basis but there is only a minority of people who actually have addiction who actually develop addiction to different drugs and those can be illicit or um, the legal type of drugs alcohol nicotine being the most common ones what's the percentage of the general public that get addicted to anything? So that depends on the drug of abuse. So the percentage of the public that reports using illicit drugs in the US when they're above the age of 12 is 20, almost 21%. So eight, almost 80% do not report any drug use. 20% of the US population report using any type of drug that, and it's mostly driven by marijuana use actually. It's uh, about 48 million of individuals. So but, would, you consider, um, would you consider even behaviors addictive? So for example, somebody binge watching Netflix, is that an addictive So behavior? now I'm getting into the definition of addiction. So what differs between those type of behaviors that are not optimal for us and addiction? There are several things. One is that you, have, you become you, uh, less, you have less and less of control over your behavior. So when you're starting to lose control over the frequency and amount of use of either a certain drug or of a certain behavior, and then this type of loss of control happens with reduction in the pleasure derived from either the drug or that behavior. So you're not enjoying it. You are actually doing it more and more despite the fact that your enjoyment from it is decreasing. And it causes catastrophic consequences to your life. So you're trying to control it, you're trying to reduce your drug use frequency and amount, and you just are, cannot, despite the fact that you are really not enjoying it anymore, and despite the fact that you're paying a very dear price in your life for your job, your family, everything that you love, everything you cherish, is just is not as urgent as the need to, do, to, to consume the drug. Everything can wait, but that need is overpowering the focus of attention. Your whole life starts to revolve around that certain drug or behavior. Now we're talking about addiction. So that's a huge difference from what just bad habits or even drug abuse or even dependence on a the drug. They're all part of the phenomenology of addiction, but only in addiction you have that constellation of reduced self-control, decreased pleasure, horrible consequences to your life. So I know that there's a concept of tolerance, especially in the context of alcohol, for example. So, so you have to take more and more of a drug or an activity or a product um, to get to this. So, so is this a, some sort of an exponentially declining so Yeah, it is part of addiction, but you can have tolerance without addiction. So for example, if you sustain a certain injury and you go to the hospital, you're prescribed opiates, 
and with time you will need more and more of the drug to reach that same uh, level of reducing your pain. You're still not addicted, you are dependent. You may be dependent on it now, so you need more and more of that tolerance. If it's abruptly discontinued, you will suffer, you will have withdrawal effects, but the, uh, that's dependence. But the addiction is not there until you start to use it more and more, even without the prescription. Mm. You're starting to lose control over how much you use when uh, and when it really is detrimental to your function. When you use so, a drug to improve function, like psychiatric medications, many people use SSRIs, for example, or any other type of antidepressants. They improve function and there is dependence there sometimes in some, with some drugs. Dependence is not addiction, it's part of addiction. You don't have addiction without dependence, but you can have dependence without addiction. So, so uh, let me try to understand this, Rita. So, if you're addicted, you're going to seek higher and higher pressure from that addiction? Is that one way to think about it? It becomes the center of your whole being, yes. It's, okay. You have a bias, a tension bias, emotional bias. Your whole life is around the need to consume the drug, and that's urgent. It becomes something that you need to survive. Everything else is still important, but it's just not as urgent as that need for the drug. So, so that goes into your um, research and your hypothesis, not necessarily hypothesis, proven uh, in the sense that the frontal cortex is seeking higher and higher levels of pressure. It's actually uh, getting involved in the decision-making process. Exactly. It's basically so, saying you have to go do this. So you started citing that first paper in 2002, where we said, okay, to understand the addiction constellation, that disorder of the brain, we have to think not only about the subcortical regions that have to do with the response to reward, to, and compulsive type of behaviors, habit formation type of regions that are extremely important. But we also have to understand how the prefrontal cortex underlies two, at least two core mechanisms, behavioral, cognitive, emotional mechanisms in addiction. And those are impaired response inhibition. So the self-control is reduced. And we know that the prefrontal cortex has a core role in the ability to monitor behavior and to control behavior and salience attribution or value type of assignment. How does the brain assign value to things uh, depending on changing con con contingencies in the environment? One thing can be good and important now, but then things change. So how does that flexible, adaptive uh, decision-making uh, happens? And the prefrontal cortex has those uh, at least two functions um, in different prefrontal cortical regions, but what we emphasize is that we need to understand the prefrontal cortex in the ability to inhibit behavior, in the ability to attribute salience, in order to understand the clinical symptoms of drug addiction, of this chronically relapsing disorder that has to do with chronic self-drug administration, very intense craving. With some drugs, there is a very intense binging, and then withdrawal, and then going back to drug self-administration, even at the when there are the best intentions to avoid drug use. Um, so that was our model, and we turned it IRISA for the impaired response inhibition and salience attribution characteristics 
and the role of the prefrontal cortex in those cognitive capacities and the way they contribute to relapse uh, and to um, even after abstinence. Yeah, so it's, it sounds like a deficiency in the sense that if the heuristics used by the prefrontal cortex exec functions um, gets affected, you know, the salience, the valuation, uh, all of those get affected by addiction. Um, I want so to take a bit exactly. of a detour. Yeah. So, so there are there are studies. We in my lab we study humans with addiction and compare them to humans without addiction. We also look at interventions and the effect of interventions on the prefrontal cortex. But with imaging, you can measure several uh, characteristics of the prefrontal cortex. You can measure its volume, just the gray matter in that region, how big or small basically a region is. Uh, you can measure function. You can measure um, how brain regions inter communicate with each other. In terms of structure, you can measure gray matter, but also white matter, and that's what connects anatomically brain regions one to the other. Um, so there are <laughs> many things you can measure using MRI, for example, and then you can also measure behavior during the MRI itself so that we can activate certain brain regions and then we can challenge them and see what happens. And then we can also associate those measures with behaviors and cognitive functions, emotions that we measure outside of the scan. And those are very important to understand this whole type of uh, picture of addiction. Uh, so uh, when, when MRI is used to, uh, for the structural type of imaging of gray matter, it's a reliable study that has been a, a reliable result. It has been shown across many different labs, across many different types of addictions to different types of drugs that the gray matter, the density of the region in the prefrontal cortex, in the ventromedial prefrontal cortex, the brain region that is one of its functions is the assignment of value and decision making. That brain region is smaller in people with uh, drug addiction as compared to healthy control subjects. And the smaller it is, the worse is the adaptive and advantageous decision making on a regular type of task. So think, the thought is that that type of structural integrity impairment is associated with the behavioral type of trait or a behavioral tendency of making the wrong choice at the wrong time that underlies this type of then drug self-administration again and again, even when it's no longer beneficial, no longer hedonic, you're not deriving pleasure from it, and you suffer severe consequences for it. So that is something that has been shown across uh, studies. Yeah, it's really interesting. So it sounds like a sort of a runaway process. Um, you lose gray matter, you, you are less able to make the right decisions, you make the wrong decisions, you lose more gray matter. I want to take a bit of a detour, uh, Rita. Uh, this is not in, the, in your research, but I wonder why, I wonder how humans got here. There had to be some sort of survival benefits for this, right, at some point? Definitely, we have receptors for all of this. We have cannabinoid receptors in the brain. We have receptors and transporters and all this mechanism to respond to cocaine. Uh, cocaine is a, when it comes from leaves, is a mild stimulant, it's like coffee. It can actually increase arousal and it can be good for cognitive function. 
But then, uh, so the brain evolved, definitely evolved to use those drugs um, in a certain way. And the thought is that maybe what happened is that before, when it was more natural, when we had to find it as species and we chewed, let's say, coca leaves, the amount, the dose you're exposed to is minimal to what people can get now and smoke now as crack. Mm -hmm. um, same for uh, all the other type of drugs, alcohol at uh, low amounts is a nutrient. Uh, it's filled with sugar from rotting type of uh, fruits and vegetables. And it can, you know, elephants consume alcohol. Um, so it's not only a human type of uh, activity, and not only humans can derive pleasure from drugs and derive many other things, not just pleasure, but like I said, also arousal. But the, it's all a question of uh, what happens, how much are you exposing your brain, what is the dose? At, at certain amounts, it can be a beneficial thing, and then at higher amounts, that's when you have all the consequences and all the trouble mm -hmm. that ensues. Um, another question you may ask is, okay, was that gray matter uh, impairment, that decrease in gray matter in that region, was it there before addiction developed? And you, I think you hinted to that. And, or is it something that the drugs cause? So the answer is both, yes. Yes to both. And basically, there are certain um, um, factors that predispose people to become addicted. And we know some of those factors, we don't know uh, everything yet. But we know that, for example, nicotine exposure in utero when you're not even born, right? Um, but that is a predisposing factor. Uh, we know that childhood severe maltreatment and abuse is a predisposing factor. Uh, the impulsivity trait is a predisposing factor. There are genetics that are predisposing. Uh, but then, so then you have this vulnerability in some people. And then if you add that the drug itself, that now you have conflated the problem. Although, even without any vulnerability, you can still cause that very serious effects on your brain because the drugs themselves have a very clear effect on the brain. And that has been shown in uh, animal studies, in non-human primates. That's why they're so important to conduct because in humans, you cannot assign people to, here, you become addicted, you don't, <laughs> right? And then study their brain. This is what we need. We need random assignment to understand what the drug causes versus something else. But in, with animals, you can, and you can take two completely similar animals. You can randomly assign them. One receives cocaine, the other does not, and then compare their brains. So with that type of studies, we know that cocaine causes decreases in gray matter in those brain regions, including the prefrontal cortex. So it has a direct effect. And also know that uh, with abstinence, and in animal studies, it was two years of abstinence from cocaine, you have recovery of gray matter in the same brain regions where there was the decrement from the drug. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, it's uh, it's really difficult to tease out the cause uh, and correlation effects here because exposed, you see a bunch of effects. I, I want to go back to um, what you were saying before. So am I correct in thinking that um, small amounts of drugs including elephants, as you said, uh, getting a bit of alcohol from um, from fruits, 
From grapes, uh, yeah, they, 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 they stampede on grapes and then they wait for it to ferment <laughs> and then they come back and they drink, yeah. They yeah, drink. might that be beneficial from an evolutionary survival perspective and in the modern world, let's say last 2000 years, we, we mass manufactured these poisons and the brain is not really able to take them. Is that the way to think about it? It, that may be one explanation. Yeah, so the elephants have to work for it and it's not plentifully available all the time. And here we can go to any liquor store and buy as much as we want and the uh, concentration is very high. It's also about how fast those drugs reach the brain. And the more, uh, so for example, if they're very potent or if you smoke them or inject them, they reach the brain much faster. Uh, and that is a fu and then that can is a function of also the craving that happens. So the faster it is, the more craving, uh, but also the more decline later, and then the more you need it again and again and again. Right. Uh, so the same drug can actually be a, a medicine if you use it a different amount and different route of administration. You can replace whatever is there that has some kind of a deficit, right? So if your brain has is low on dopamine uh, neurotransmission, and we need dopamine for so many different functions, not just to process reward, but to process things that are novel, that, novel, that are salient, for motor, for, mo for moving, for uh, remembering, for uh, basically everything that we do, we need dopamine. And if you're low on that, uh, we can boost it up a little bit and that can be very healthy for the people who have a low baseline type of dopamine tone but for people whose dopamine tone is healthy and normal boosting it up actually will decrease their function so it depends not only about those and how fast it gets to the brain but also your baseline function your baseline brain function uh, for for some people the same thing for some people can be healing or at least a medication type of thing and for other people it can be detrimental yeah so we're talking about drugs specifically here but as you mentioned before addiction is a broader concept you can get addicted to pretty much anything including drugs and so it appears that in small quantities i think we all have a propensity to get i think some people have a higher propensity to get addicted and they will get addicted faster than others. I do think that all of us with the right, with the, with the wrong environment and with a lot of stress and with the drugs, certain drugs that reach our brain fast and with the high potency, yes, we all have that vulnerability as a species. Some of us are protected. We do have also some of us who are protected against it. Is there a diagnostic you can deploy uh, to sort of tease out the, 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 the population that are more susceptible to addiction? So I think as scientists, we know some of the factors that are making somebody susceptible versus protect somebody. Uh, it's not yet at the level of an individual. We don't, we're not there yet where a person can come to the lab, have kind of a readout how vulnerable am I to cocaine addiction or alcohol or nicotine and it's also based on the drug itself for example nicotine addiction and cigarettes it, nicotine is a very addictive product and um, a lot of people get dependent on it and addicted to it very fast and um, 
But no, we don't have yet a readout based on our brain on our susceptibility. You can, you know, we can. Some of the things make sense, and we don't need science for that. So if you have parents, uh, you grew up with parents who both smoked cigarettes, you probably will be more vulnerable to also develop addiction. Although some people again are actually protected against it, mm. um, and that depends on some also on dopamine receptor availability. So it does depend on some of the brain characteristics. Yeah, so I don't know if this is part of your research, uh, Rita. So we know that tobacco and alcohol are legally available in the US, uh, but cannabis, uh, I don't know what the current regulatory structure is, but it may not be um, widely available in the US in all states. Um, so what's your sense of, you know, sort of addictive powers of these three things, tobacco, alcohol, and cannabis. So cannabis right now is uh, legal in New York, in New Jersey, Colorado. There are several there are several states already that are legalizing it. Um, and I'm sorry. So what is the question? No. So I was just wondering because we have you know we have readily legalized alcohol and tobacco, but there is some resistance to legalizing cannabis. Yeah. But what does research tell us about sort of the addictive? powers of these three substances. The decision to legalize certain drugs and not others is political. It's not based on science. <laughs> I want to stay away from the political. <laughs> yes. every, like, but every drug can be beneficial and extremely detrimental. Every single drug, including cannabis. Um, and we have to be careful. We have to you know, be careful about who you know, with children and adolescents, that where there is more, uh, you know, vulnerability there. Uh, but also, everything can be used medically, and I think that um, uh, maybe legalizing it actually will allow us to study it a little more easily. Also, um, in Europe, so I was mentioning how. Uh, a person with, with low dopaminergic tone, if you add some dopamine to that person, it actually will improve their function. And you can do that in several ways. One is just by using Ritalin, right? It's methylphenidate. It's the, the drug that is used to treat ADHD, people with ADHD. It, it helps with attention. And Ritalin has a, a mechanism of action that is very similar to cocaine. But there is no high, there is no craving because it's low doses and it's orally administered and it normalizes dopamine function, especially for the people who need it and it helps them with attention. So oh, these drugs can be detrimental, but if used in the right way for the right person, they can really improve function. So here a stimulant, Ritalin is a stimulant, but it can be helpful. In our, we, we have a series of studies where we use Ritalin or methylphenidate to improve cognitive function in people with cocaine addiction. And we show that at the level of the brain and the level of the behavior that it improves function. And uh, so the point would be that for pe some people, a stimulant can be actually a good thing in terms of how they pay attention, how they perform certain tasks, and it actually can then help them use less drugs. So, but you are using a stimulant in people who are with stimulant addiction. Uh, but it's the same concept as what we do now with people with heroin addiction uh, who want to stop using heroin and we give them methadone or buprenorphine or other type of drugs that also target the same system in the brain, the same receptors, 
but it replaces in some way uh, heroin and it normalizes their function and it allows them then to function better than with heroin without the detrimental effects that heroin has. Yeah, so I, I was envisioning, uh, Peter, in the future, some sort of a patch that has artificial intelligence and small quantities of variety of substances built into it that can release microdosing based on what it learns from where the individual is, right? I mean, I, I think that technology might be pretty close, I would think. I'm not, I don't know. <laughs> it's very optimistic. Uh, I think we may we will be there, but not right now. And it does not necessarily have to be micro dosing. It has to be the right dose for the right person. You don't want to underdose either, because then you're not doing anything. So you need to know the baseline baseline state of a certain person at a certain time. Addiction is so fascinating to study, also because it's such a dynamic, context-dependent disorder. So many of us can be addicted, and you will never know it. There is, it's not like people with, uh, for example, schizophrenia, who are much, uh, because their severity and the impairment of their cognitive function is so much more um, noticeable. So you can spot it a little easier. But with people with addiction, you will not see anything until they are in the right context. So a person who is addicted to alcohol in the office, nobody can notice that. But it, when they go to the bar, and everybody leaves after one or two drinks and they keep drinking not just one or two, but you know, it adds up and they cannot stop. They cannot monitor it, they regulate it in the same way that others can, despite the fact they are trying again and again, they just don't know how. Uh, that, so decision, you need context sort of the, to the impairment. Because the decision processes are impaired, so you can make the right decisions at some point, right? So, so it's sort of a runaway process, right, isn't it? Yeah, it's the right decision at the right time. It's not that their decision making is completely off all the time for everything. It's not. It's a very specific type of impairment. It's how do I manage my uh, drug? What is it that I prioritize? What is it that comes first versus later? How do I regulate all of these dance between everything else that I need in my environment and my job, my career, family, etc with the drugs. The drugs become extremely potent, extremely important. Everything else is kind of pales in comparison. And so then your decision making, yes, it's going to be geared towards making you an expert on how to get the drugs, how to use them, etc. How to, many, many things around the drugs, you're the expert. But it comes at the expense of everything else, both in terms of responding hedonically to other things, but also making the right decisions for the other things, because you need the drug now. That's, that's the important thing. Right. So you have a recent paper, The Neurobiology of Drug Addiction, Cross-Species Insights into the Dysfunction and Recovery of the Prefrontal Cortex. We talked a bit about this. A growing preclinical and clinical body of work on the effects of chronic drug use and drug addiction has extended the scope of inquiry into the putative reward-related subcortical mechanism to higher-order exec functions as regulated by the prefrontal cortex. Uh, you say here we review the neuroimaging evidence in humans and non-human primates to demonstrate the involvement of the prefrontal cortex in emotional, cognitive, and behavioral alterations in drug addiction 
with particular attention to the impaired response inhibition and salience attribution framework. So this is your claim to fame data. So the ERISA framework. Could, could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, so basically uh, we're thinking about the underlying cognitive and emotional behavioral type of uh, impairments in addiction. And how can we understand that from the neuropsychological perspective? So, especially vis-a-vis -vis the prefrontal cortical role in the ability to inhibit behavior, in the ability to assign this type of values and for this type of salience processing. And that review paper made, you know, when we compared results in humans versus non-human primates, with humans, we see those correlations, let's say, with that gray matter reduction in the ventromedial PFC and uh, years of use. The higher the years of use, the lower the gray matter. So the more the deficit and the lower, the, the worse is the decision making. But was it there before addiction came along? Maybe it was there all along. Maybe that's what predisposed the person to become addicted. Uh, how do we know it's actually the effect of cocaine that caused it? We don't from human studies. But only when we do this type of comparison with the non-human primate literature, then we see, yes, cocaine caused something that was not there before, because with the non-human primates, you can measure them before addiction and after. In humans, we don't have that measurement before they develop addiction. We don't. And we usually cannot also uh, scan them repeatedly after they become addicted. Although um, this is exactly the type of studies that we need and uh, kind of within subject designs so that we know what's associated with addiction and especially is the recovery in the brain when people either abstain or reduce drug use or there is some kind of an intervention that we can use to improve function in those brain regions. Yeah, so, so one thing I'm you know, thinking about, Rita, I don't know if I understand this correctly. So if the, the decision-making processes are impaired, the individual is not necessarily able to detoxify by himself or herself because you're always going to be pulled in where, you know, from a position of, you know, where you are, right? So, so you need some sort of active intervention for it to work. So it's not only the decision-making that's impaired that's contributing to that, uh, but also the craving, the strong pull you have. It's so unpleasant. It's so hard. And you're sick. You're sick without your drug. You are really, you need all the help and support you can get. There is treatment. The point is that actually we have treatments that work. Like I said, methadone for heroin addiction, buprenorphine. Those are great examples. But only a minority, a small minority of people with addiction who need treatment get it. 93% of people with addiction who meet criteria for a drug use disorder do not get treatment. 93%. Only 7% get treatment for many different reasons. One is just availability of treatment. Another is recognizing you, you need to go to treatment or your, your primary care physician you know, referring you to treatment. There is a lot of stigma around it. There is a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of issues that prevent people with addiction and those who need it to get treatment. One is also the focus of the whole field on abstinence, zero drug use. 
And like I hinted before, for some people, this is not the goal. It's not good for them, or that's not what they want, or not what they need. Yeah. Uh, so I think if we approach this treatment thinking a little bit more flexibly and try to reduce drug use to a level that actually then a person can live a more fulfilling life, people will come more to treatment. Not to mention that we should make treatment just plentifully available for the people who need it the most. And now with the pandemic, uh, you know, there is an increase of use of opiates, of heroin, of different type of drugs. But and still, and people are also disconnected, and they're disconnected from treatment. So even those who were receiving treatment now with the pandemic, that's a, it's a huge problem. Hmm. Yeah. So just wondering, Rita, you know, so you you mentioned sort of a genetic proclivity. So the, you know, I'm aware of one gene at least that makes you that gives you higher pressure, say from alcohol consumption, and and we know that the people who carry that gene tend to be more addicted. To alcohol, as an example, so guess that there's a genetic proclivity that we are aware of, but are there a sort of environmental factors that we can sort of um, make it more systematic? You know, I'm just thinking diet. Um, I, I don't know what other things, but are we aware of other things that make you more prone to addiction? Yeah. So even with genetics, I want to say a few words. Uh, is, you know, it's not a Mendelian disorder, addiction. It's not, it's something that uh, there is no one gene contributing to this complex behavior. Addiction is a complex behavior. You have a lot of different genes and you have different combination of genes. And then you have epigenetic type of processes to take into account too. So it's a very complex set of uh, studies, but it has been shown that it's definitely not one gene. It's a combination of different type of genes that make people susceptible to dysregulated behavior. And that type of dysregulated behavior can express itself in different ways. For some people, they are addicted. Other people will have different type of disorder. Um, but it will affect your brain function and across the whole body you will have, there are many different type of disorders that then related to those that are, that combination of genes that has to do with this, the, ability, the inefficient ability to regulate your behavior. And we also studied single genes like the monoamine oxidase A, dopaminergic type of genes, they all contribute, they all, but it's definitely a very complicated type of uh, pattern. In terms of environmental exposures, absolutely there are predisposing factors. Uh, any type, like, uh, first I mentioned nicot being exposed to nicotine in utero, so if your mother smoked during pregnancy, um, as a cohort, as a group of individuals, those people are at a higher risk for experimenting with drugs when they're adolescent and then becoming addicted. Uh, and is, is it just it, the mother or the father also? Is it just the mother or Father, uh, then you would have passive smoking, so that would be would have to be, you're exposed to passive smoking in utero. I'm not familiar with all those type of studies. <clears throat> it will have to be very massive type of passive smoking exposure, probably. But yeah. I'm sure you can probably measure with the, the level maybe of the animal of the rodents. Uh, humans, I don't know. I'm not familiar. Interest that would be interesting. Um, but nicotine in utero, childhood neglect maltreatment, abuse, uh, definitely is a predisposing factor. 
through brain development. Um, lead exposure, uh, things that are associated with, with the impoverished type of uh, environments, uh, directly and indirectly, uh, through the brain, but also through other type of factors. Um, A lot of epigenetic effects that we don't quite understand. Um, so, so I want to I want to finish up with your uh, recent paper, structure and functional brain recovery in individuals with substance use disorders during abstinence. As a longitudinal neuroimaging study. So this is really difficult to do, I would imagine. It is. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, so what if I, so you take an individual and the, uh, and the individual recovers, abstain, and uh, his or her brain changes. So, so, so what do we find here? Okay, so we have several, that paper essentially was a review of the whole literature. I'll, I'll describe what we did in my, our lab, in my lab. So we take people who are trying to abstain at baseline and we scan them. We do all kinds of studies with them using MRI, but also behavioral tests, etc. And then they come back to participate in our studies at different intervals into their uh, either abstinence or drug use trajectories. And some people, uh, we have several studies. Uh, some people are, we recruit them when they just finish treatment or when they just begin treatment. So the, the reason in human studies, the ability to do this type of studies is, it's really something pretty complicated. It's not like with animals, you can get them, you can give them enough drugs, they become addicted or some of them, and then you just take the drug away and then you can measure them repeatedly into 100% abstinence. We don't have that. We have a lot of natural variability, but still then you can measure them several times a year, let's say, or several times in a month. And you can assess the same functions, including imaging-based functions, or EEG, so electrical activity on the skull. Uh, and one of our earliest studies showed that with uh, six months of abstinence, people with cocaine addiction show recovery. They show recovery in gray matter in those brain regions we spoke about, including the PFC prefrontal cortex, but they also showed recovery in their decision-making. So they had that impairment on that decision-making task at baseline immediately after detox. It was three weeks into detox. And then when we measure it again six months later, there was no longer uh, a difference from the healthy control subjects. And it was correlated with their brain recovery. So that ability to abstain for six months was associated with increasing gray matter in your brain in the ventral medial prefrontal cortex. and a better decision making, meaning that maybe those are the people who, when they go out there, they will be making the right choice at the right time and they will be saying no right now because I have to pick up my kids or something like that. So, but that was a very selected sample of individuals who were able to maintain abstinence for six months. It's a minority of people who are struggling from addiction. And now we're studying using very similar type of methods also people with heroin addiction who are in treatment and receiving methadone or buprenorphine as medication assisted treatment. And again, but again, we see recovery even earlier after uh, eight weeks into treatment, we see recovery in the way their brain responds to the context of heroin cues. It's no longer is as responsive as uh, it was in the beginning. So they're able to kind of suppress that type of immediate responsiveness to those cues and they're able to savor 
other reinforcers. So they're able to shift that seesaw that came from this hyper type of arousal and attention and salience of drug use at the expense of everything else. They're now able to start to regulate it. And maybe that will then uh, allow them to maintain more control over their drug use or abstinence, if that's uh, where they're going to go. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, um, the brain hardware is not that flexible. Um, diseases such as Alzheimer's and Parkinson's, things like that, we haven't been able to really uh, effect, the, effect the recovery there really well. But it appears that if the brain is able to sort of come back, so to speak, uh, it means it's more of a tactical effect that it could from. That's the point. I don't know where it goes back because we did not measure them before addiction. So we cannot say it goes back. We don't know what back was. We do know that now they don't show differences from healthy control subjects who did not have addiction. So we can do that type of comparison. But the brain is plastic and it is uh, it can show change even with, you know, at, later ages we're talking here about our subjects are in their 40s and in their 50s and it does show this type of improvements with either abstinence or with treatment for heroin or with a more psychological type of treatments we see that improvement also uh, we see for like mindfulness we're testing that right now and we are also testing tdcs transcranial direct current stimulation so we're delivering directly current to a certain brain region, the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. It's very important for inhibitory control. And our results and others show that it helps with reducing craving in people with addiction. So there are many different novel ways, but then again, there are existing treatments that we just need to get them out and people need to use them more. Yeah, so the way I think about it, Rita, is that uh, brain has a lot of capacity, unused capacity. We, can't, we are working on with a quantum computer. I think we are using it to the max. Yeah. I don't think it's unused. <laughs> I think we're all using it constantly, 100%. <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so, you know, I, I sometimes feel like it gets, it gets bored um, in the sense that out in the African savanna, you know, it had different challenges. In the modern world, it is a sort of a different set of challenges, but it's, it's different. So I feel like the brain is getting bored. And then it's seeking a way to get out of that boredom in, in, these, uh, in these effects. For me, uh, I, I understand it more as a way of how it gets into certain habits. The brain wants to minimize effort expenditure. So it's not for nothing that we have regions in the brain that are really essential for forming habits because we cannot constantly treat everything as entirely new otherwise we would be always busy learning how to write right or drive but we need to we start doing things automatically after a while and that's an amazing capacity uh, but that same capacity also goes away with drugs of addiction and right because you have this compulsive habit type of driven behavior for drugs again and again and again. So I don't see how boredom plays into it. 
I think maybe as an alter, the, the way I would look into it is that enrichment and cognitive enrichment of learning, of playing, of social interactions in childhood can protect the child against developing addiction. So yes, if they are under uh, challenging their learning and memory capacity, their social development, emotional development, that can definitely predispose them to doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And enrichment in animals has been shown to be protective. Yeah, this is a tangent. Do you see any sort of long-term effects of the pandemic? I mean, there's clearly a social constraint, not only on kids, but also on adults that we are going through. Do you, you see? a huge stress so for so many people for such a long time that yeah I see definitely a detrimental effect on society unless we do something to intervene, especially yeah. for the most vulnerable people but we clearly see an increase in opiate use in heroin use but not in cocaine use which I don't understand so it, again you know the devil is in the detail but uh, I think the pandemic for the vulnerable sections of society and the vulnerable individuals can be uh, definitely detrimental and, and we need to intervene. And the, it's actually also uh, shows us how we can use this type of remote tools to reach people when we couldn't reach them before. So now we can use Zoom or any type of other platform for intervention purposes and we should use that more and more to deliver treatment uh, of all different types of treatment. So that can be the, the good thing about the pandemic. Yes, excellent. Yeah, this is great, Rita. Thanks so much for spending time with me. Okay, is that it? We're done. Thank you. Okay. okay, thank you very much. Let me know if I can answer any other questions. Thank you. Okay, bye. Nice meeting you.